Friday the 15th of December, and you're listening to Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. Coming up, Michigan wastes at least 2 billion pounds of food every year, and solving that problem could be key for the state's climate goals. Christina Caramo was a popular figure among Michigan Republicans not so long ago, but the tide may have turned as some call for her removal as chair of the state GOP. If you're dreaming of a white Christmas, that's a bit of a pipe dream this year. Meteorologist Mark Torregrossa explains what's behind this balmy winter so far across the state. The warmer weather is part of a larger trend. We'll have data journalist Scott Levin on the show to look at how temperatures have changed in Michigan over the past decade. That's all ahead on Michigan News from MLive. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The state of Michigan has set a goal to reach 100% carbon neutrality by the year 2050. We've reported in the past on several efforts to reach that goal, like removing barriers to clean energy projects or moving towards electric vehicles. But there's another major contributor to Michigan's carbon footprint that you might not think about as much. Food waste. Sherry McWhorter is MLive's climate reporter and joins us again today. Hi, Sherry. Hi, Patrick. Nice to chat with you again. Let's start with some numbers here. How much food goes to waste in Michigan and how does that impact our carbon footprint as a state? Well, a recent food waste analysis for Michigan found that we collectively send about 2 billion pounds of food to landfills each year. Wow. And that's that's not even all we waste. Uh, there are what are considered food losses that happen between the farm and the market. And then there is food waste, which happens by retailers or consumers. Uh, consultants recently determined that Michigan has an approximate 2.68 million tons of lost and wasted food, and that was just in the year 2021. So that means all the energy and carbon emissions associated with growing, harvesting, transporting, packaging, and preparing all that food, that's, that was all wasted, all for naught. So what's being done about this, or at least, you know, what's being talked about that could or should be done? Well, the, the consultants gave some recommendations. The uh, Michigan Sustainable Business Forum did the analysis and said that to start, Michigan should support efforts to reduce food waste with grants and technical assistance to communities. Um, there's talk of creating a, a food waste educational campaign to show people how not only how many carbon emissions they waste with their purchased but uneaten food, but also how much money they are wasting. Hmm. Uh, It's been suggested that the governor set up a a food waste council and begin working on the problem. And uh, the consultants said Michigan is going to need a bunch more regional composting facilities. Uh, But there was one big suggestion, and, and that was for the state to consider an outright ban on food waste in landfills. And, and that would be a whopper. You know, Sherry, another thing that comes to mind when I think food waste is missed opportunity. 
I mean, there are families struggling with food insecurity all over the country. Michigan is no exception. And yet so much perfectly good food is thrown away. As the state tries to tackle the food waste problem, has there been any talk about distributing that food to folks in need? Yes, there there has been. Uh, the consultants suggested Michigan change laws about uh, quality and safety dates on food packaging uh, and, and also allow food to be donated to charities after the quality date. Uh, there's uh, also motivation to work together across the state to develop donation channels, ways to get that excess food from Michigan farms and retailers to the organizations that help feed people. I mean, we can even set up ways to donate food scraps to livestock farmers to supplement what they feed their animals. I uh, spoke to a, a food systems researcher from Vermont who said it may have taken the better part of a decade, but that state was able to set up programs to feed more people with rescued food and said food waste to hog farmers, for example. I don't see why Michigan can't do the same. Yeah, absolutely. Some some great ideas there. And Lastly, before any regulations are changed, what can folks do on an individual level? How can we try and prevent our food waste from ending up in a landfill? Well, among the suggestions I'm hearing and implementing in my own kitchen are to be careful how much we cook in the first place. Don't cook such a large meal that you have gobs of leftovers. Also, there are ways to store foods that keep them fresher longer. I learned that washing your strawberries and storing them in a glass jar with a lid will keep them fresh for weeks longer than just tossing the plastic container they came in into the crisper drawer in the fridge. But we, uh, we also have to be realistic. We are going to have some food waste, at least scraps and such. And for that, you compost. I recently bought a compost spinner after hearing food waste experts speak at a state sustainability conference. I'm determined to at least do my part, and I'm hoping my flower beds appreciate the effort. Sherry McWhorter is a climate reporter with MLive. Head to our website to find her story that asks if Michigan should ban food waste in landfills. Sherry, thanks for being here. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, Patrick. When Christina Caramo was elected chair of the Michigan GOP last winter, she received glowing endorsements from many prominent Republicans across the state. But now, 10 months into her leadership of the party, some of her biggest supporters have turned. Ben Orner is a political reporter with MLive and joins us with more. Hi, Ben. Hey, Patrick. To start off, take us back to February, almost a year ago now, when Caramo was elected. What were some of her talking points or her goals for the party, and how was she received by Michigan Republicans? So Karamo, people may remember, was the 2022 Republican candidate for Secretary of State. Um, she had no political experience before that. She actually rose to prominence um, as a poll worker at that uh, Detroit Convention Center absentee ballot uh, counting location uh, in 2020. That was the site of you know, all those conspiracy theories that there was fraud and cheating. Um, those were debunked, but but Karamo... Uh, just rose to prominence as a, you know, a torch uh, bearer of, you know, keeping those conspiracy theories alive that that Trump somehow won the election in Michigan. Um, And she gained a following uh, with these sort of, you know, grassroots level Republicans uh, who were also angry 
about the election. Uh, she did not run a very well-funded uh, campaign. She lost by 600,000 votes to Jocelyn Benson, the Democrat Secretary of State. But the chair race for Michigan Republican Party uh, loomed a few months later in early February. A lot of people ran for it. Uh, Christina Cromo's platform was essentially take power back from, you know, a, let's say, elite, a more elitist level of, um, you know, maybe less conservative uh, establishment, uh, Michigan Republican, and, and uh, give power back to the local delegates, the, the county parties who, um, you know, the, their, their wins had, had changed into a, uh, a more conservative, more right-wing uh, pro-Trump sentiment, uh, and she won. And Ben, you wrote about a couple key Karamo supporters, chairs of their county Republican parties, who are now speaking out against Karamo. Who are some of the most notable recent detractors and what are they calling for? The two biggest ones to know are uh, the Oakland County Party uh, Republican Party chair, uh, Vance Patrick, and the Macomb County Republican Party chair, Mark Fortin. Uh, Fortin uh, has told MLive in recent weeks, um, you know, he's done with Karamo. He was a big Big Karamo supporter, uh, you know, he was a big, big populist, anti-establishment. Like, let's, you know, let let's reform the the Republican Party. Um, but he just, you know, has fallen out of love with Karamo. Uh, Patrick, though, uh, Vance Patrick had a, a big statement last week um, saying that uh, you know under Karamo's leadership, the party has not done enough to raise money for local Republicans. You know, it's mired in controversies as Karamo continues to say that uh, the 2020 election was stolen, that you know, there's so much corruption in Michigan government. You know, she's saying so many things that there, there just just is not evidence for. Um, and it's hurting the party's reputation uh, among a statewide audience. Um, and she's not done an effective job uh, raising money. And so, uh, you know, folks are falling out of love with her. Yeah. And I mean, you just touched on this a bit, but. What might be some of the reasons for this change of tune from the party that elected Karamo as chair? What's happened between then and now that might have swayed opinions? So her argument when she ran for chair was that um, the there there are other ways to raise money for the party than relying on you know these billionaire DeVos type donors, and uh, that may be true. You know maybe you know mom and pop Republican can can pitch in. 10 bucks or so. Uh, but as MLife has gotten peaks at uh, the Republican Party's finances, the party is very close to broke. Um, there are maybe low thousands of dollars that they have access to. Um, but the party, is, you know, 10 months after Cuomo took over, really isn't in a better financial position than when she took over. And the, the biggest thing is, is that, you know, the party needs money to support Republicans to win elections. And Vance Patrick's big thing was you know, the party wasn't a big help in these uh, local level elections uh, this past November, and he doesn't have confidence in, in Cromwell's ability to lead the party to a, you know, a financial stability that helps Republicans take back a U.S. Senate seat, take back the legislature, win other elections. Uh, and so on December 27th, December 27th, the uh, the state Republican Party committee, uh, think of that as like 
the board, if Karamo is like CEO or chairman of the board, that kind of thing, they are holding a special meeting on December 27th uh, to decide on whether to kick out Christina Karamo from that chair spot. Lastly, Ben, Karamo, as you mentioned, has been a staunch defender of former President Donald Trump and often repeated his false claims of election fraud. Do you feel that the party turning on Karamo says anything about opinions of Trump in Michigan as we're headed towards another election year? I don't think so. I think that maybe in some uh, past elections, if people remember um, you know, the Peter Meyer losing to a Trump endorsee in the Republican primary last year, you know, that was kind of a, a Trump support proxy war kind of thing. This, I don't think so, because you know, Karamo likes Trump. The, the people who have flipped on her like Trump. A lot of Republicans like Trump. He's, you know, far and away the the leader in the presidential primary right now. And uh, there are polls that show him beating Biden in Michigan next year. So, no, I don't think this is a, a proxy for uh, support of Trump. However, um, Karamo has been conspiratorial. She's been divisive in her role as chair. And you know, as we get into a general election, in Michigan, a purple state, pretty evenly split Republican-Democrat uh, support. Um, I don't think, you know, someone of Karamo's flavor of conservative, that kind of platform, I don't know if that's, that's the best antidote, I guess, to Democratic control to, to you know, beat Democrats. Because we saw uh, last year across the country, uh, Trump endorses. Um, spouting, you know, false election stuff, that kind of thing, they lost. So we'll see. It'll be very interesting. And December 27th, is, that's the big date. We see if Karamo gets to keep her job. Keep an eye on that date. MLive reporters like Ben will be covering it. Ben Orner is a political reporter with MLive. You can read his story on our website right now. It's called More Pressure Mounts to Remove Michigan's Once Cheered GOP Chair. Ben, thanks for your time. Thanks, Patrick. A few weeks back, we had meteorologist Mark Torregrossa on the podcast to look ahead at some winter weather predictions. Well, here we are, well into December, and I'd be remiss if I didn't allow a chance for I told you so's. Mark, thanks for joining us again. How's it going? It's going good. I I just caution on the I told you so's. I'm getting a lot of that because we talked about a warm winter, but my big asterisk to everybody is look at the calendar. It's only mid-December, so there's a lot of time for us still to be wrong. <laughs> well, last time we spoke, you told us the outlook for this winter was a little bit warmer and a little bit drier than we might be used to. How's it played out so far? It's playing out right by the record, by the playbook of El Nino. And the reason why we uh, pointing toward warmer than normal winter, two reasons. The foundational reason is that the globe is warming and that over time we've had slightly warmer temperatures from global warming as we go into the winter. Second set of reasons would be the fact that the El Nino has formed. And when El Nino is going, we tend to have a warmer than normal winter. It, also note that the El Nino pattern that we typically see typically shows up around December and it has shown up. So when we look at the weather maps, it just reeks of an El Nino weather pattern right now. Yeah, like you mentioned, it's an El Nino year. We're seeing the effect of that across the state. But has anything surprised you this month? I mean, there were a few days where folks were walking around in shorts and T-shirts again. I mean, did, did any of this catch you as a meteorologist off guard a bit? 
the abnormality of warm weather has not caught me off guard. And I think that's a, a great uh, victory for meteorology and long-range forecasting, which is very important because we talked about in the past strong El Ninos, we've had some December days that are in the 50s and 60s. Some of our most historic, memorable, warm Christmases have occurred on strong El Ninos. Now, here's what has surprised me, and I'm actually going to be writing about this in an MLive post today even. The El Nino changes the global weather pattern. And I thought that our computer models would be robust enough to know this. When we saw El Ninos back in the 80s and 90s, uh, yeah, I'm old. I've been doing it that long. The models didn't know that El Nino was going on and that storms would gravitate toward the Gulf Coast and the models didn't forecast very well. I'm seeing that same pattern. The models are way better now, but I'm seeing that something that we would trust in a normal pattern at six, seven, eight days out is changing. And we get to four or five days and it looks a lot different than what we thought at eight days. So I'm going to write a post actually to caution folks that you've gotten used to trusting the weather forecast at six, seven, eight days out. We may not be able to trust uh, the model data that we see and therefore the forecasts that are produced off of it. And I'm going to, I'm going to shy back on my confidence on seeing a storm seven days out. And I'm going to say, let's wait to see what it looks like at five and four days out. That's really interesting, Mark. You know, I always take extended forecasts with like a little grain of salt, but I feel like I have noticed this winter that it even does seem to fluctuate pretty wildly over the course of a week. Um, so it's interesting to hear the reasons that might be behind that. Um, you wrote a story on Monday that looks at something important going on 15,000 feet up in the atmosphere, the 500 millibar pressure level. Mark, that's a lot of millibars. Uh, <laughs> full, full disclosure, I don't know what that means at all. So enlighten us. Tell us what's going on way up there and what it could mean for Michigan's weather in the next couple weeks. Okay. The complex story that I'll try to simplify made short is that 500 millibars is about halfway up in the atmosphere, about 15,000 feet up. And what I was trying to show you in that post is that 15,000 feet up, the atmosphere is warm and expanded like an October pattern and does not look like a December pattern. And if the air aloft is warmer than normal, guess what we have here at the surface? Warmer than normal air as well. So if I said, if somebody came to me and said, you only get one weather map, Mark, and you can make forecasts for the next 10 days off of that weather map and your life depends upon it, I'm going to take the 500 millibar map because I can recreate what should be happening at the surface. So the point the point is, and actually that's my second post for today, is that I found some data that shows that mid-level of the atmosphere, 15,000 feet up, is going to be expanded and warmer almost than we've ever been, close to a record warmth in the mid-levels of the atmosphere. And just think about it, you know, what if your house, what if your furnace was cranking out heat and you were too hot. You'd know that in your bed, you're going to be too hot too. And that's what the 500 millibar surface is all about. It's the driver of our weather. 
Mark Torregrossa is a meteorologist and master gardener with MLive. You can get a deeper understanding of the forecast by reading his work at MLive.com weather. Mark, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for your time. Hey, thank you. Take care. Have a great green Christmas. As we just heard from Mark Torregrossa, it doesn't seem like a white Christmas is in the cards for Michigan. And while an El Nino year is partly to blame, this warm winter is also part of a larger trend throughout the region. Scott Levin is a data journalist with MLive who put some really interesting graphics together on our website that display this trend. And he joins us now. Hi, Scott. Hi. How you doing? Doing well. So your story looks at some warming trends over the past decade or so in Michigan, and you look at it through the lens of plant hardiness zones. What exactly does that mean? Uh, so the zones... Um a range there's about 30 plus of them and they're they're five degree ranges so negative five to negative 10 all the way up to like 65 to 70 um, and what that does is it um, tells gardeners uh, essentially what seeds they can plant and what uh, what will survive through the cold winters now this can be for annuals uh, doesn't really matter but for perennials in particular it just allows them to gauge what will die off in the winter or what will survive uh, and be ready for the spring. And what were some of the major changes you noticed when looking through this data? You know, which things did you highlight in your story? Well, where it came from was um, uh, United States Department of Agriculture and um, as weather stations across the country. Um, this, this particular release had over 13,400 weather stations. And uh, what it did was it collect the minimum extreme temperature for the last 30 years. And then it uh, basically uh, brought it all together and made an average of it. First of all, the U.S. Uh, as a whole country, uh, according to the USDA, has averaged uh, about two and a half degrees warmer. That doesn't sound like a lot, but in, in uh, scientific purposes, it really is. In Michigan, um, you know, they did, the USDA didn't give a, a, a state-specific uh, warming average, and it would be nearly impossible for me to gather all of the data and then produce a really clean average. But what it did do is it shows that there are many zones across the state that have literally warmed an extra 5 to 10 degrees uh, since 2012. And it's pretty evident where. Um, and I made a map for the story that overlays zip codes and city data on top of the uh, hardiness zone data. And what it showed most specifically is that there were large parts of Michigan that warmed up 5 to 10 degrees. Most specifically in the lower half of the uh, lower peninsula, central Michigan. It also showed that in the UP, particularly the western side of the UP that borders Wisconsin, also large swaths of it warmed uh, 5 degrees. And then there's also little pockets um, in northern Michigan that warmed 5 degrees. And um, those are pretty evident as well on my maps. When you were sifting through this data from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, was there any indication about the reason behind this trend in Michigan? No, no I mean, they do. The USDA has a whole graph on the, the causes. And basically, they're saying we don't ha we're not uh, officially uh, naming a cause. They, they, they do say that climate change is real. They believe that a lot of climate change is caused by human uh, intervention. Also, there are other warming trends like weather systems, the Great Lakes temperatures. Um, all these things contribute to it, but they make it pretty clear that this is uh, a plant hardiness zone uh, data map. And it's not really, um, for lack of a better word, it's not a political statement on the effects of climate change, not only in the U.S., but across the world. 
Um, but it's clear that climate change is warming the, the, the planet, the country, and this is an example of it. A really data-heavy, accurate example. It is data-heavy, but you present it in a really interesting and digestible way. And Scott, something I'm kind of curious about is when you're looking for a good story idea, what kind of data are you looking for? How do you decide what might resonate with readers? The first thing that it really is important to me when it comes to the data I get, if possible, and 90% of the time it is possible, is to have a geographic component. What people really want to know is um, what's going on where they live and also what's going on with their neighbor. And so, uh, you know, I would say about half of the data I get is broken up by counties, which there's 83 counties in Michigan. That's, that's still pretty useful and interesting. But what I really get excited for is when there's data at a city level or, a, or even at, in the case of the uh, hardiness map, a zip code level, which, you know, there's multiple zip codes per city. So the, the more granular I can get on a geographic component, the more um, useful I feel like my stories are to people. And even if they live, let's say, in Kent County, they're still interested in what's going on in the UP or um, what's going on in Detroit. Uh, Ann Arbor, you know, the location resonates with people and it really uh, is a key component to the data that I try to get. Scott Levin is a reporter and data journalist for MLive's statewide impact team. You can find his work at MLive.com. Scott, thanks for your time. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you. That just about does it for this week, but as always, I'll leave you with a look ahead at this weekend's Michigan sports action and a few big storylines from the past week. The Red Wings are away in Philadelphia tonight. Puck drops at 7 p.m. as they take on the Flyers. Wings captain Dylan Larkin is on injured reserve after being knocked unconscious on the ice last week against the Ottawa Senators. He's out with an upper body injury and an unknown return date. Larkin will be a big miss, along with forward David Perron, who's been issued a six-game suspension after retaliating for that hit on Larkin with a cross-check to the head of an Ottawa defender. It was a mess. News broke Wednesday that Perron is appealing the suspension. The Detroit Pistons continue their historic losing streak, now 20 games in a row. That's a franchise record, and only six games away from an all-time NBA record for consecutive losses in a single season. The current record holder is the Philadelphia 76ers, who the Pistons happen to be playing tonight, Friday, at 7. After a disappointing loss in Chicago last week, the Detroit Lions still have a two-game lead at the top of the NFC North, with four games to go in the regular season. They're back at home Saturday against the Denver Broncos and hope to take a big step towards securing their first division title since 1993. That's a primetime kickoff at Ford Field, Saturday, 8.15 p.m. And just a few blocks away, Michigan State basketball takes on number six ranked Baylor at 2 p.m. in the Motor City Invitational at Little Caesars Arena. Meanwhile, the Wolverines will play Eastern Michigan at 2.30 in Ann Arbor. For more on both of those programs, check out the Spartan Confidential and Wolverine Confidential podcasts. And while you're at it, get ready for the Lions game with some expert analysis on the Dungeon of Doom podcast. This has been Michigan News from MLive. I'm Patrick Shea. Thanks so much for listening and have a great weekend.